Well, this Advent season, we are going to be focusing on uh, what does it mean to believe and what is the nature of faith and what is the nature of biblical faith. Let's pause and join together in prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, we pray for your spirit to guide and to bless your word and to open up our hearts that we would have insight into your truth. But not only will we have insight into your truth, but that we would have conviction of it and that conviction would lead us to action and active trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What does it mean to believe? What does it mean to have faith? This time of year we're surrounded in the malls, in the stores, on the internet, uh, in magazines, um, in the movies, with all of these different calls for people to believe. And for people to believe and for people to have faith, such as believe in the magic of Christmas. Don't stop believing. And by the way, I don't believe I've got any spoiler alerts that I need to give out here as we, as we dive into this today. But all these varying calls to, to believe. See signs that say, you know, Christmas trees that say, faith, hope, love, believe, Christmas. What exactly does that mean? And there is, oft, there is a confusion as to discern at what level do you believe something to be do you believe something to be true? I mean, at Christmas time, we just need to believe, right? I mean, that's the different signs and things that we get around us. This issue of faith and what the nature of biblical belief is something that I regularly discuss with people. And if I'm talking with people that are not Christians or as I've talked with some of you, if you've been exploring Christianity, one of the things is that we wrestle with is what is the nature of faith and how is the nature of biblical faith different than what is commonly perceived as faith? In the midst of these conversations last Christmas, I was watching Christmas movies with my family, and it was surprising to me how frequently the very issues of faith and belief that, I deal, that I've interacted with with some of you and people in our community were the positions that were articulated in many of these Christmas movies themselves overtly. And so this morning, we're going to use this time to focus on what is the nature of, what is the nature of biblical faith. We're going to be exa- begin by examining what faith is not, and then get a picture of what the Bible describes that faith truly is. To begin with, what, is, what faith is not? First one we're looking at is that faith is not the opposite of reason. It is not opposed to reason, and it is not anti-reason. In the old version of Miracle on 34th Street, For those of you that remember this and have seen it, by the way, the older version is better than the newer version. For those of you who have seen Miracle on 34th Street, you know the debate, the question at hand is, is Kris Kringle really Santa Claus or not? And there's a competition between the varying uh, department stores because the store that has Kris Kringle is killing it and the other store is not. And so a lawsuit develops and he's taken to court over to prove whether or not this guy is Kris Kringle or not or he should be locked up into the loony bin. And of the characters, you had the man who was the attorney who was defending Kris Kringle, his fiancée, Doris, and her daughter, Susie. And Doris is kind of more a bit of the skeptic in the movie. And during the movie, shortly before the final scene when the mailmen come in and just dump bags and bags and bags of mail on the judge's desk, right before this climactic scene, there is this poignant moment in the nature of faith is discussed. And the daughter, Susie, says to her mother, Doris, she says, Mom, this doesn't make sense at all. The mother says, Honey, we just have to keep believing. And she says, That doesn't make sense. And the mother, Doris, says this, Faith is believing in things 
when common sense tells you not to. Faith is believing in things when common sense tells you not to. Now, the most positive way that you could take this is to say faith is uh, believing in something, and it's, it is beyond comprehension. It is beyond our usual ability to know things, or we really need to have faith is hope when things get tough. But I think the overt words of what she is saying here is that faith is opposed to reason, that common sense tells you not to believe something. It tells you not to believe, and you decide, I'm going to believe it anyway. So, for example, common sense would say, if I take this hammer and I smash it on my thumb, it's really, really going to hurt. And this definition of faith would say, no, just believe. If you believe, if you've got enough faith, if you just believe hard enough, if you just believe enough, common sense, faith is believing something when common sense, when common sense tells you not to. That's not faith, that's foolishness, right? And it's irrationality and reality would prove that a hammer on the thumb really does hurt no matter what I believe, right? That's not faith, it's irrationality and foolishness. Faith does not oppose reason. In fact, it accompanies it. In fact, faith is actually acting upon reason. The two of these things go together, not just in relationship with God, but in all areas of life. God made us as rational beings, rational beings to act rationally and reasonably with our minds to act in faith. Faith is not the opposite of reason. In fact, it is acting upon reason. Similar thing to discern, to distinguish faith from is that faith is not certainty. It's not certainty. And, and faith is also not the opposite of doubt or the absence of doubt. In the recent version with Chris Kringle, he in the midst of it is trying to articulate why people should believe in him, and people are saying that it's just wishful thinking, and it's just wishful thinking or that it's foolishness, and he responds by saying, well, if you can't believe, if you can't accept anything on faith, then you're doomed for a life dominated by doubt. What is the insistence that's going on in this phrase? If you can't accept anything on faith, if you can't accept anything on wishful thinking, then you're doomed to a life of doubt, which would be, in his usage, uh, a pessimistic realism. But these two things actually go together, for faith and doubt are virtually the same thing. In fact, in fact you might say that they are two sides of the same coin. Because every doubt is an alternate faith assertion. Faith is not the absence of doubt. In fact, doubt is just as much an act of faith as they purport faith to be. It's the flip side of doubt. Tim Keller, reflecting on this, says this, All doubts, however skeptical and cynical they may seem, are really a set of alternate beliefs. He goes on, you cannot doubt belief A except from a position of faith in belief B. And he gives the example. He says, so for example, if you hold to the position, if you doubt Christianity because you say there can't be just one true religion, you need to acknowledge that that statement itself is an act of faith. You can't prove it. You can't, uh, you can't prove it empirically. You can't demonstrate it that it's something that is universal that everyone accepts. If you went into the Middle East and you were walking around the Middle East and you said, there can't be just one true religion, 
nearly everyone would say, why not? Why not? And so he continues, the reason you doubt Christianity's belief A is because you hold unprovable belief B. Every doubt, therefore, is based on a leap of faith. The only way to doubt Christianity rightly, he continues, and fairly, is to discern the alternate belief under each of your doubts and to ask yourself what reasons you have for believing it. What are the reasons for the faith assertions that you are making in the doubts that you hold? Faith and doubt are actually virtually the same thing. Third aspect related to faith to distinguish biblical faith from and this is really related to truth, is that truth is not determined by collective faith. Truth is not determined by what the majority of people think. In the 1994 version of Miracle on 34th Street, this time the way that Kris Kringle is vindicated is not because of the mailman and the mail coming in there. Instead, there are crowds and crowds of people standing outside the courthouse window holding up signs that say, we believe, we believe. And right before the judge renders his verdict, Susie, the little girl, walks up to the, to the, judge's, watch, walks up to the judge and hands the judge a gift, and inside the envelope that she gives to him, there is a dollar bill with the words, in God we trust, circled on it. And he sits there and he pauses on this and he issues this statement. He says, this little girl has given me this dollar bill. It's going to be returned to her shortly. But by presenting me with this bill, she reminded me that it's issued by the Treasury of the United States of America and it's backed by the government and the people of the United States of America. Upon inspection of the article, you will see the words, in God we trust. We're not here to prove that God exists, but we are here to prove that a being just as invisible and yet just as present exists. Notice what the judge is doing. He is directly equating a rationale for belief in God as directly parallel to a rationale for belief in Kris Kringle. And this is the reasoning for it. We're not here to prove that God exists, but we are here to prove that a being just as invisible and yet just as present exists. The federal government puts its trust in God. It does so on faith and faith alone. And that usage meaning an unbased assertion. He continues, it's the will of the people that guides the government. And it is and was their collective faith in a greater being that gave and gives cause to this bill's inscription. Now... If the government of the United States can issue its currency bearing a declaration of trust in God without demanding physical evidence of the existence or the non-existence of a greater being, then the state of New York, by a similar demonstration of the collective faith of its people, can accept and acknowledge that Santa Claus does exist and he exists in the person of Kris Kringle, case dismissed. What is the basis of his argument? His argument is saying, look, if all of these people say this to be true, we say it's true. Now, that might sound a little bit absurd, but this is actually one of the dominant views of how truth is determined today and probably in your life. You hear it when people say things like this when they're wrestling with an issue and they say, all of my friends think, fill in the blank. 
means, well, if all of my friends think this, they can't be wrong. And if all of my friends think this, then that is correct. Or, everyone I talk to says this, so I'm going to do it. Because there is a collective knowledge and that many people can't be wrong. Or more commonly, so when someone says they're working through an issue and they say, well, I did some research on the internet and I know this to be true. That one's particularly ironic because in an article on CNBC last week or a month ago, there was a Google executive who was being interviewed. And he was talking about the problems that they were having with their search engines and the problems that they were having prioritizing information and delineating between news, truth and fake truth, news and fake news in the midst of the article that they were talking about. And this is what he says in it. He says, let's say that this group believes fact A and this group believes fact B. And you passionately disagree with each other and you are all publishing and writing about it and so forth and so on. It is very difficult for us to understand the truth, meaning the Google algorithms. Specifically referring to the search engine's algorithmic capabilities. The article continues, the problem comes when diametrically opposed views, viewpoints abound. The Google algorithm cannot identify which is misinformation and which is truth. That's the rub for the tech giant. The, the tech advisor says this from Google. Now, that's, that's the line that we can't really get across. What's remarkable here is that what he is overtly stating and admitting to is the way that the Google search engine determines, de determines truth is by the collection of how many articles are there on a given subject issuing a given opinion. And he's saying that is how we prioritize what is true and what is not. And if there's a volume of both of those with competing rationale, we can't determine which one is true and which one's not and how to priority, pr prioritize them. Truth being determined by collective faith in our modern uses. Unfortunately, consensus or majority opinion oftentimes or may be nothing more simply than collected and pooled ignorance of the people who are contributing. So we look at these different, different things, and you can get, if you, if you examine other Christmas movies, there's a whole slew of them that make different articulations about what faith is from the Polar Express, Polar Express, which articulates this view of faith that if you believe enough, it will happen, from Elf and the Santa Claus, which are also fun movies, that hold to the view that if enough people believe, if enough people believe hard enough and enough people believe sincerely enough, then it's really going to happen. And what you, envision to, what you envision will become a reality and you can make Santa's reindeer fly if you do this. But you just have to believe enough and have to get enough people to believe in order for these things to occur. If that's, not what faith, if that's what faith is not, what does the Bible say that faith is? We turn our attention now to Hebrews chapter 11. And Hebrews 11 gives this phrase to begin. Now faith is the assurance of the things hoped for, the faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Now, we should understand this phrase here not to be a dictionary definition of faith, but rather the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing, emphasizing aspects of faith that are predominantly true in the believers of the past and visible in the believers of the past. Nonetheless, it is still incredibly helpful. John Murray, the renowned theologian of the 20th century, he said, faith consists of three different things, knowledge, conviction, and trust. 
We might put it a little bit differently. We might say instead of knowledge, there's information. There's a basic set of information that you need, knowledge and information, that there is conviction, conviction being a belief that that knowledge is true and trustworthy, knowledge, conviction, uh, knowledge or information, conviction or belief, and that that leads to, he would say, trust, and he uses the term trust meaning to an, an active demonstration. So we might say knowledge or information, conviction or belief, trust or action. And this is what you see laid out in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, what is faith? Well, there's this component of knowledge. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That in order for this to be the the case, there is knowledge of something in which to hope. There is knowledge that is necessary. It is never generalized. That whenever someone has faith, that faith is always based on a real or perceived piece of information and a piece of knowledge. It is the assurance of things hoped for because there is information, knowledge that has been given, a promise of God that was made that the person is subsequently acting upon. Put it differently. Let's say that your parent says to you, on Christmas morning, when you go downstairs, your stocking is going to be full of presents. There is information that is communicated there, that, you're, that you have a stocking, that your stocking will be full of presents, and it will be full of presents on Christmas morning. And so you have that knowledge, and you think about it, and you decide that that knowledge is, is trustworthy because trustworthy parents gave a, a trustworthy word. So similarly, faith is rooted in knowledge. That God, that there is a trustworthy word, a trustworthy promise that is given by a trustworthy God. Knowledge being a core component. Knowledge then, that then leads to conviction, knowledge or information that leads to conviction or belief. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Conviction here meaning that it is the belief that the word is true, that despite seeing certain things, despite these things being visible, despite them being a future reality, there is a conviction that the truth that is said is true, it is trustworthy, and it is being believed. So, for example, your parent says to you, on Christmas morning, your stocking is going to be full of presents, but your older sibling says to you, not for you, my dear. On Christmas morning, your stocking is going to be filled with giant pile of dirt. All right? Two different sets of information that are out there. Two different pieces of knowledge. One says stocking full of presents. One says stocking full of, one says stocking full of dirt. Well, which are you going to believe? This is where the issue of conviction comes in. Competing knowledge, competing information, and there is a conviction, a belief that one of them is true. And so you come to the conclusion, well, my parents are generally trustworthy, and my sibling is generally, or at least more often, untrustworthy in this matter. Therefore, the knowledge that I have, I am going to choose to believe, have a conviction that what my parent says is true and not what my older sibling says is true. Third component of it is knowledge, conviction, and then action or trust. 
that this knowledge and conviction then moves a person to action. The text says, For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. Now what he's referring to here is the rest of the chapter demonstrates and gives multiple examples of people, biblical heroes, broken people, but people who lived in faith. People who had knowledge, they heard the word of God, they heard the promises of God, the information was given to them, that knowledge became a belief, they said, yes, I believe that to be true, that is a conviction of mine, that that is true and trustworthy, and that leads them to action, and that their belief turns into faith, which is, an, which is action. And the faith of the ancient believers that we're about to see is that they are taking God at his word and acting accordingly. They heard, received information, believed, and then acted. There was knowledge given to them, conviction of that knowledge, and they trusted it in it, and it re they reoriented their entire life around these promises. They decided that a trustworthy God had given a trustworthy word that they could trust their lives upon, and so they acted in trust. Information, belief, action. Now, to clarify, when I use the word belief here, I'm referring to belief in the sense of mental acknowledgement, that belief would be knowledge, information, plus the conviction that it's true. Um, in the biblical usage, uh, you might descend other delineations might be between uh, head knowledge and heart knowledge. Or the Bible might say that a person uh, believes this, if you confess the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart, they would say that this is a heart belief. For our purposes here, I'm delineating belief as mental acknowledgement that information is true, and faith being the act of commitment on the part of a believer. Faith being the actual action, the act of commitment on the part of the believer. Let me give a real-life example of how this works out. Some of you know the story. It's, it's worth repeating because it's still amazing. Um, a while ago, there was a man by the name of uh, Charles Blondin who was a tightrope walker. There's an article in Smithsonian Magazine that, that detailed this man's feet. He was a French tightrope walker, and he was known in particular for doing a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And so the tightrope was made across Niagara Falls, and with great fanfare, he um, used it, and he hold, held his pole, and he made it across Niagara Falls, to which the crowds went crazy, and everybody loved, loved what he was doing. They wanted to see him do it again. He said, I'm not going to do it again today, but come back tomorrow and bring your friends. Bigger crowd came back the next day. And so this time, when he headed across Niagara Falls, he had this giant thing strapped on his back. And as he got two-thirds of the way across from the American side to the Canadian side, he then stopped, pulled, up the, pulled out the old-school camera, set it up on the tightrope, and then took a picture of all the crowds that was watching him. The next day, he started adding more and varied feats, such as the day after that when he strapped a table to his back, sat down, table and chair, sat down and popped open a bottle of champagne and had a glass of champagne sitting on the tightrope over in Niagara Falls. He also did a variety of other feats, like one time he went across with a lit stove on his back, stopped it, set up the stove with a table and chairs, cooked pancakes on it, flipped the pancakes over, sat down and, sat down and ate breakfast. On another occasion, he decided that he, um, and then he would do various things like pretend that he would fall off and then he'd climb back up, up, up. 
And then they decided that they were needing, these kind of tricks were getting a little bit old, so they decided that they needed to up the ante. So he convinced his producer that he should go across on his back. So the producer held on to him, and they went across Niagara Falls, and he said to the producer, don't you try to balance us, I'm going to try to balance us. If you try to balance us, we're going to fall off. And all the crowd would cheer for the various things that he would do. Another occasion, he'd go back and forth on a wheelbarrow and do all kinds of other tricks. And so what happened there is that there were people who heard what he had done. Information was being dispersed. There was knowledge being dispersed in the newspapers. This guy, Greg Blond Charles Blondin, is walking across Niagara Falls with all kinds of gifts and with all kinds of gimmicks. I don't believe this. I don't believe that he's actually doing this. I got to go see this for myself. Knowledge, information, people go there and they see him doing these things. Okay, I believe it. I saw it with my own eyes. Knowledge, conviction, information, and belief. Well, knowing this dynamic, Blondin on one of these escapades goes to the crowd and he says to the crowd, how many of you here think that I can walk across Niagara Falls in this tightrope? Absolutely. Very good. How many of you think that I can walk across Niagara Falls with this wheelbarrow, on this, uh, with a tightrope on this wheelbarrow? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's see you do it. This is great. How many of you that if there was a person in this wheelbarrow believe that I could walk across Niagara Falls with a person in my wheelbarrow? And the crowd goes nuts. And Yeah, absolutely. And he says, do you believe this? I absolutely believe that you can do this. Are you sure? Absolutely sure. Well, great. You, sir, with your hand up, would you come sit in the wheelbarrow? <laughs> That's the difference between belief and faith. That's the difference between belief and acting on the belief, between conviction and trust. And the biblical picture that we see here laid out is that there is knowledge and information that is trustworthy. There is a conviction, and that conviction learns to act of trust. There is information given, belief that that information is true, and that belief then turns into a life reorientation and people acting in faith. So the text gives multiple examples. I'm just going to highlight some of the most prominent ones here from biblical history. It talks about the creation of the world, Abel, Enoch. We're going to focus here on, let's take Noah. It says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as of yet unseen. Noah didn't have any evidence that the world was flooding. In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Knowledge, God tells him. Noah, build an ark. I'm going to save you and save your family. Conviction. He believes that to be true. That belief turns into action where he orients his life around building this massive ark for him and his family to get saved. And they climb in the boat and they seal the ark shut even though it hasn't rained yet. Knowledge, conviction, action. That there is move forward into demonstrated belief. He goes on to describe Abraham. Abraham, when he obeyed, was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Abraham, the word of God was given to him, information. He decided that it was a trustworthy word by a trustworthy person. He decided that what God said was true. He believed it. That belief turned into faith. That belief turned into action. His faith, he acted. It was the act of commitment on the part of, believer, of a believer. He went out, left his homeland, and traveled to where God said he would go, even though he never saw it and had no idea where he was going. The text continues. By faith, he went into the land of promise in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. 
knowledge, conviction, trust. Information, belief, action. Text goes on to describe Sarah and others and their children, Isaac and Jacob, Joseph, how they all acted in faith. Text described Moses and Moses' family, how Moses' mother put Moses into a basket, and then Moses becomes the, became a leader. It says, by faith, Moses left Egypt with the people of God, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. What did Moses do? There was the word of God given to him. There was truth, knowledge. He believed it. There was conviction, and it turned into faith. Faith, he was acting upon that conviction, and even though he couldn't see anything, even though he couldn't see the deliverance, he himself went forward leading the people of God out in faith, acting upon the belief. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. What happened there? Red Sea in front of them, Egyptians behind them. God says, I will deliver you. Walk into the water. Information given, it's trustworthy, they believe it, and what do they do? They step on it. Red Sea parts, the people walk through. By faith, they walk through, and then subsequently the Egyptians are drowned. Continues on to other examples. And then he lists ones that he, he can't go into. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they may rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. By faith. How? Because there was information that they believed to be trustworthy and true, and they acted in faith. Their faith was acting upon, the, was acting upon what they believed to be true. Even to the point about when they were about to be sawn in two and given the option to recant, said, no, I will not recant. Despite what is visible before me right now, I will not recant because God has given me a trustworthy God, has given me a trustworthy word, and I will live in faith. I would rather be sawn in two than compromise the belief. Continues. And here is the significance of why Hebrews lays these out, the writer of Hebrews. It says, all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Now, sometimes when people look, read Hebrews, they say, okay, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so they say, faith is believing in what I don't see. And Hebrews is saying, you Christians today don't have faith like they did of old. And here's why. Because all these, though commended through faith, did not receive what was promised. Abraham never had the full promise of the, the promised land. He never saw his descendants as large as the seashore. He never saw all the promises that God said that he would do. He never saw those things. They were invisible to him. He never experienced them. He never even had really any visible evidence that it was going to occur. Nor did the other ones. 
All of these, though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised. There was a word that was given to them. They acted in faith, and the reality of that promise was still still someday in the future. But the point of this passage in Hebrews is, is to say, your faith is not like their faith. You have a greater reason for faith than they did. Because for them, this was all invisible, but for you, it has become visible. Since, verse 40, God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should be made perfect. What he is identifying is this. For these believers who acted in faith, broken, fallible, sinful people who acted in faith in very difficult circumstances, their entire life was the season of Advent and Christmas never came. Their entire life was preparing and getting ready for the birth of the, and anticipating the birth of the Christ child and the birth of Jesus Christ. That is not our situation. We live in the reality of Christmas Day. We live on this side of Christmas. We live on this side of Good Friday, on this side of Easter. We don't have to exercise faith like them of old. Their faith looked to a real future of God's promises, but they did not know what the future would look like. Their faith was purely invisible, but that is not us. For them, their faith was in these promises in the invisible realm, but for us, these promises have been made visible. They look to the future when a Christ child would come, but that is not us. We celebrate the historical reality and the historical event of God become man in the visible flesh in Jesus Christ. They look forward invisibly to a day when there would be a perfect sacrifice that would restore God's people with God. We celebrate the historical reality of Jesus Christ dying on the cross and rising from the grave as the perfect sacrifice and forgiveness of our sins. They look forward to an invisible future when the promise to Abraham that that Abraham's line would be a blessing to the nations. But we celebrate, and if you're not of Jewish lineage, we participate that God adopts people of every tongue, tribe, race, and nation into God's own family through faith in Jesus Christ. They look to an invisible future that their land would be restored. We celebrate that through Jesus Christ, the inheritance of the people of God has been broadened to the entire earth. The reason why Hebrews lists all these people out is because they're saying, you have so, should have so much more confidence You should have so much more of a basis because these things were purely invisible, but you have the historical reality of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And where our life and the faith that we have is in common with the faith of people of old is the fullness of God's kingdom to come, that we join with them, looking forward to an invisible future when there will be a new heavens and new earth. When the King of Kings and Lord of Lords will come back and there will indeed be peace on, all of, on the entire earth and the earth and the entire created order will be restored. We live this day with greater confidence than any of them, greater evidence than any of them ever had. We have the information, the knowledge, 
There is the belief, to believe that to be true. What do we do with it? Act. It is a calling for us to have faith. Faith, to act, it is the act of commitment on the part of the believer. This is how Hebrews states it. All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not they should not be made perfect. What's the significance? What do we do with this information that you believe to be trustworthy and true? You act upon it. Therefore, since we were surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, people who lived in faith, even though they had no visible reason to do so, since we were surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run with endurance. Let us live out our faith. Let us persevere in faith. Let us take our knowledge and information and our beliefs and turn that into faith and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus Christ the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Do you hear what it's calling us to do? It is calling, Hebrews is calling us to engage in the same pattern that the saints of old engaged in. You have the information, you have the knowledge. That knowledge should turn into a belief, into a conviction, and that belief and conviction cannot just stay in your head, but must turn into a demonstrated faith of acting upon what Christ has done. That your life would be transformed. That you would reorient your life and your time and your money and your priorities and your values. That your life would have a total transformation acting in faith upon the trustworthy word from a trustworthy God. To act and live in faith in Jesus Christ. The text says that we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith. To look to Jesus. What this means is that for some of you, it means you need to start using your mind. For those of you here today who are skeptics and doubt Christianity and doubt the truth of Christianity, doubt the truth of Christianity, it's not because you don't have faith, it's because you have an alternate, alternate faith. And what Hebrews is calling you and looking to Christ is to use your mind. That you would begin to investigate why Christians believe in Jesus Christ. And that you yourself would have intellectual integrity. And that you would examine the blind faith which is inherent in your doubts. The faith insertions that drive your doubts that are unavoidably and inherently there, and what are the reasons that you hold to them? That you would have intellectual integrity and use your mind so as to understand your faith and what faith in Christ truly means. There's a whole other group of you, and that's the people who say, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I grew up in church. I believed this my whole life. I believe these things to be true. And for those of you that, that, that hold to this belief, that you say, yeah, I've got the knowledge, I, I, I've, got the, I've got the knowledge, I have the conviction, I, I, I believe it to be true, what you need is not just belief, you need faith. You don't just need belief, you need faith that acts on what you believe. 
You need faith that lives a life that is reoriented around, reoriented around those beliefs. For the devil has better theology than you or I. He, he believes the truth of God. The challenge is he does not act in accord with those beliefs. He acts in rebellion to those beliefs. He does not act in faith upon the truth of God. He acts in faith upon the truth of his own perspective and his own particular views. And for those of you that have said, well, what, what's the big deal? I believe in Jesus. I believe in Christmas. I believe in the bird Jesus came in a manger. I believe all these things. The issue is that your belief needs to turn to faith. That means that you actually need to not just believe that the guy can go back and forth on Niagara Falls with a wheelbarrow, but it means that, when, that you yourself need to get into that wheelbarrow. It means that you need to not just simply say, yeah, I believe these things about Christ in my head, but I need to believe them in my heart and trust in them and reorient my life around them. For those of you here who you do live in faith, that you earnestly reorient and consciously reorient your life around Jesus Christ. I, I hope you're encouraged. And particularly at this time of year, I hope you're encouraged because for Christians, for we who stand on this side of Christmas and this side of Good Friday and this side of Easter, Advent, which means coming, is not about looking forward to the birth of Christ. That already happened. What are you looking forward to? He was already born. But rather, what Advent is about is celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. Celebrating the birth and work of Jesus Christ. And that celebration, that evidence, that knowledge and information, that it serves for you as an encouragement to look forward to the fullness of Jesus Christ coming again. That you look forward to what God is doing and what God promises to do because you stand this day and here in this moment in the historical reality, in the historical aftermath of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That you would live in faith and be encouraged in faith. So this Christmas, may you believe. May you believe, not wishfully, not foolishly, not ignorantly. May you believe not irrationally or, or even perfectly. But may you believe in Jesus Christ and may your belief turn into faith. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not an abstract God who is distant, removed, and detached from this world. We thank you, Lord, that Christianity is not based upon a series of principles, but is based upon historical acts, historical events of you, God Almighty, entering in and intervening in real life, in real history, so that real people like us could receive the blessing of your promises. So, Father, for my brothers and sisters and friends here today, for whom there are doubts and there are questions, would you help, help them to examine the faith that underlies their doubts? And for those that do hold to faith in you, would you help them to understand 
the knowledge and reasons why that faith is a legitimate and rational act. And that through all of those, Lord, that you would move us from knowledge to conviction and from conviction to living in faith and acting and reorienting our lives around the transformational truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Come, Lord Jesus, work in our hearts, we pray. Amen.